Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm loving this time together with you. I have Psalm 121 open. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Let's get started. My guest today, Lieutenant Colonel Dakota Wood. He's a U.S. Marine Corps retired, also a senior research fellow for defense programs at the Heritage Foundation. He's with me on our studio line. Hello, Dakota. It's really good to be with you. Again, we were just talking. I wish it was, you know, a better kind of topic, you know, more optimistic. But uh, these anniversaries uh, roll around, and I think it's important to talk about them. Well, on a brighter note, speaking of the Heritage Foundation, a couple of weeks ago yeah. I had a chance to speak to uh, to Kay uh, Coles-James, and all she right. talked about was getting you your raise. That's all she talked about. <laughs> so I hope that has shown up in your most recent pay period. <laughs> I couldn't get her to quiet down. She is uh, just a dynamo. She, I mean, oh, she is. About, you know, leading the fight uh, for right. her principles and values, and uh, she's just been a real blessing to the foundation. Right. So because it is 9-11 today, and I would love to just get your reflections on what it was like for you 19 years ago, I think we all play that uh, little role in our head as to what we were doing and where we were and how we were processing it, but uh, certainly different for you. Right. I was uh, actually assigned to an office in the Pentagon uh, at that time, and it just so happened that that morning uh, I was escorting. I was the senior uh, Marine Corps uh, uh, assistant there in the office, and I was escorting our director, who was in his early 80s, uh, to a um, a meeting at downtown D.C. And uh, so he ran a small think tank supporting the Secretary of Defense. I was part of that group, and so we were at this meeting. Somebody busts into the meeting and said that the Pentagon had been attacked, and so you know, the primary job was to get him to safety, uh, and then try to reconnect with uh, you know family. So, um, you know, my wife lived uh, a bit outside of the Beltway around the Washington D.C. area. We had a, three small kids at the time, and mm-hmm. myself with you know tens of thousands of other you know, others in Washington D.C. were trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, you know, the Pentagon was in flames, smoke coming up and all, and it was just uh, chaotic, and rumors were running amok. But in the midst of that chaos uh, was just the greatest examples of people you know, helping each other out. You know, hey, do you need a phone? Uh, can I give you a ride someplace? You know, uh, people sharing information. And so I think it's in those times of stress and turmoil that really some of the brighter aspects of people really shine through. I can be such a foolish, naive radio host at times because I, I think that I have experienced everything I could experience having watched uh, the replay of what happened that day. And again, this morning, I get up and I watch it all over again, and I experience it fresh and new and and painful in ways I had never experienced before. So there goes my naivete. Yeah, I mean, it's extraordinary. Uh, oh. you know, a, a group that I had been with there in the Pentagon, just across the other side of the building, that the plane uh, came in there on the western side of the Pentagon and, and basically burrowed under my old office. And, uh, you know, obviously uh, several hundred people were killed. Um, 
but uh, fortunately none of my comrades, but, but they were able to render assistance immediately to those who were injured. Uh, and then a mutual friend of ours that uh, I'd gone to church with for, for a long time, FBI agent, uh, plunged into that mess as well. And he ended up succumbing to cancer as a result of so a lot of the asbestos and things that you know people were breathing in at the time. But uh, it was just a horrific moment. And like so many Americans, you know, later on that afternoon, you're watching the news coming out of New York and a replay of what was going on on all the news feeds. Dakota, I saw an article that you wrote at the Heritage. At, uh, I tell all my listeners to go to heritage.org, and the article is called The Price of Cutting Defense Spending. There's some brilliant takeaways from this article I would love for you to talk about when you say that terrorist and criminal groups long for a world in which the U.S. turns inward and reduces its military. I'd love for you to talk about that. Yeah, so I try to think of really big issues, you know, that affect the nation and the globe and all that, and I try to think about them in in individual terms or small town uh, terms. So because that's what we can relate to. I mean, that's what I relate to. And so if I'm in poor health, it's hard to really withstand, you know, something that might come up that that threatens my health. If the uh, family isn't positioned properly. Uh, then you're subject to all kinds of travails that go on during during the day. If a, a small town doesn't have um, a stable police force that the citizens trust, then it falls victim to you know, the predatory behavior of criminals. And so the bigger world is just a larger manifestation of that. Mm-hmm. And I think it's foolish for us to think that there aren't other forces out in the world, you know, terrorist groups, criminal narco cartels out of Latin America and South America, um, state-sponsored terrorism, uh, like Iran sponsors Hamas and Hezbollah and other groups uh, to perpetrate attacks against the state of Israel uh, and elsewhere. And to think that that doesn't happen uh, is is misguided. And to think that we don't need capabilities that can address that, I think, are misguided. And so the point of that article was, if you need a tool and you don't have it when you need it, there's not time to run to the store and come back and get it if it's an emergency, right? Mm-hmm. If it takes three years to build a ship, uh, then when I need a warship in the Persian Gulf or the South China Sea, I can't wait three years to build a thing and float it out of the yard. And so what we've allowed to occur since the end of the Cold War is an atrophying and a shrinkage of our forces to really half to maybe two-thirds the size they were back in the 1980s. And yet the world has become more complicated, you know, with Russia, Iran, North Korea, China, and others. Uh, It's not less so. And so where we think that living is good in the United States in so many ways, that we don't have to continue investing in the sorts of things that we would need to confront some kind of an opposing force, we're really playing a very risky game. And, uh, and I think that the near-term demands of you know, uh, social uh, entitlement sorts of spending and taking care of internal infrastructure and, help, and helping people deal with a COVID pandemic uh, really blinds us to the longer-term needs that you just cannot afford uh, to underfund. And, and yet that's what we find ourselves doing. Mm-hmm. Dakota, another takeaway from your uh, brilliant article is that the military today is two-thirds or less the size it was when the United States led the world in standing against the Soviet Union. I'm curious as to the average U.S. citizen, how informed do you think they are regarding the size and strength of the U.S. military? Yeah, not not very well. I mean, I've run the numbers on this several times. And so our military has shrunk by a third. It's two-thirds the size it was. 
and yet the U.S. population has increased by a third. Huh. We've gone from 250 million Americans to 330 million Americans. So if you have more people but a smaller military, there are fewer touch points. You know, you know fewer people who are in the military. There are fewer opportunities to really get exposure to or to talk to somebody. And so we lose a, a feeling for what military things are, you know, what the lifestyle is like, uh, what people do when they put on a uniform and deploy out from the United States and go other places. And so it's then hard to be informed when you hear these discussions or debates in Washington about defense spending. You know, are we spending too much or too little? Well, if you don't have a reference point, mm-hmm. it's really hard to interpret what comes you know, through the news media and through politicians and those sorts of things. And so it calls for us to think to be very uh, thoughtful about this, to be very um, intentional and really trying to understand what is necessary to keep our country you know, free and secure and prosperous and healthy and all those sorts of things in a very, very troubled world. Dakota, was there a surge of en- enlisting uh, at 9-11, 19 years ago? Was there a, a, a bunch of Huge. men and women that signed up? Yeah, I mean, you had 40- and 50-year-olds, you know, 60-year-olds. Hey, I served you know, back in the day, wow. and I want to step forward and serve again uh, across all the services, across any demographic slice of America that you can think of. And what we actually see, even today, is re-enlistment rates, you know, people getting to the end of their contracted term of service, and they want to re-enlist or re-up with the military. Those are actually higher in operational environments, you know, when you're out abroad and doing things, because you see the reality of working with, you know, men and women around you, the wonderful cross-section that represents of America, and and serving the country in a way in a foreign land or in foreign waters, it really brings it home. And and it's, you know, it's team building. You feel like you're part of something that's larger than yourself. And you want to stay, you know, part of that. I mean, if I think those of us who were around back in 9/11, 2001, remember the overpasses with American flags, you know, draped over the side, and people mm-hmm. taking, you know, baked items and whatnot to the local fire department, police station, and really wanting to contribute in some way because it was a unifying experience. And uh, you know, as you get past that, and you have these extended periods of relative peace and prosperity. People tend to forget. You know, they get complacent, and they get, uh, you know, kind of. Uh, uh, I want to say immune to that stuff, but but it's not is is nearly held, and and so I think we lose that. And so these periods of, you know, remembering things, you know, anniversaries and uh, these opportunities to really reflect, uh, I, I think, are very important to that. Mm-hmm. You know, as we go on in our daily living. Um, my special guest is Lieutenant Colonel Dakota Wood former U.S. Marine and now a senior research fellow for the defense programs at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, lots more. Dakota Wood as my special guest on this day. He uh, is with the 
defense programs at the Heritage Foundation. And I, when we were talking about the size of the military right before we went to break, uh, Dakota, I was thinking that it is an obligation assigned in the Constitution, isn't it, that, that the federal government will defend our country and protect our way of life. And that's, that's kind of a non-negotiable, isn't it? It is. I mean, you only talk about enumerated responsibilities or yeah. obligations. There just aren't that many. I mean, the Constitution isn't that long, you know, the number of pages. And so there are only a very few number of things that the government is supposed to do. Over two, over 200 years, 240 years, it's taken on additional responsibilities. You know, other things that it wants to do and it can do, but defense of the country, nobody else can do. So if you want to talk about providing health care or education or building a road, you know, that can be done at the family level, community level, uh, you know, these local sorts of projects that you can take on. Uh, but, you know, some small town in Oklahoma or Kansas or Oregon cannot defend the country. So there, there are things that only the federal government can really do. And, and when it isn't paying attention to those and explaining to the public, you know, why this is important and how much it's going to cost and all those sorts of things, I think it's really abrogating its responsibilities. And too often at the senior levels uh, of government, uh, they get distracted by other things and they really fail to follow through on one of those very few things that they're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. Do you think we as uh, Americans get a little complacent with the security that we enjoy? I do. I mean, if you were living in Europe and you're, you're in a country and surrounded by four or five other countries uh, with a history of conflict, you would be much more aware. Uh, same thing in Africa or in Asia or the Middle East. The United States, great neighbors to you know, the north and the south of us, protected by oceans. And so we're really not concerned on a daily basis with what a neighbor is doing, whether a risk of invasion or somebody lobs uh, you know, artillery around or floats a balloon and drops something onto one of our towns or cities. You know, we're just not, we don't have to think about that. You know, so it's a very pleasant uh, uh, living experience here in the United States writ large. And we own all the natural resources we need from uh, you know, energy sources and, and wood products and fresh water and arable land and all those sorts of things. Other parts of the world aren't so blessed, and you know, they really have to scrap for that sort of thing. So we're blessed in that we have all these resources, and we have the physical protections that come with our geostrategic position. That also makes you complacent. You know, you just don't have to think about these things on a regular basis. And again, going back to the obligations of the federal government, it's the responsibility and the duty of senior uh, elected officials to remind the public of that. And I think it's incumbent upon all of us to think when we get up in the day or a few times a week or what have you, you know, what does it take to make the system run that we enjoy on a daily basis? And you know, share that with our children and coworkers and, and have a discussion about that from time to time. Mm-hmm. Dakota, I'd love for you to talk about the, the use of military for domestic matters. Well, there is certainly precedent. I mean, going back two centuries. So uh, there was a concern in the early days of our country uh, about uh, a a heavy-handed central government that used its military to incarcerate people and to impose will. And so there was a a great reluctance to having a big standing army or having a navy and these sorts of things. So there these protections built into our Constitution and how our government was created that restricted use of military forces to only specified sorts of things. So these are external threats, you know, enemy countries or forces or pirates 
those sorts of things. But there was also a recognition that sometimes things get out of hand even inside the country. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Civil War, post-Civil War, during the Reconstruction era, the rise of the Ku Klux Klan and these other groups, so where a local community is overwhelmed by violence of some sort, and the local government at the state level is either unwilling or unable uh, to address uh, that kind of discord. And so then the federal government is constitutionally, legally authorized to use federal forces in support of those sorts of problems. It's the Insurrection Act of 1807, and it's been amended and upheld, you know, for over two centuries now. Uh, but but it, we reluctantly do that. You know, these sorts of things need to be handled at the state and local level. Military forces are for security when they are used domestically. They don't have arrest powers. So you can't, you know, go up and arrest somebody like a state trooper or a local police department or a county sheriff can do. So they're restricted from that. But certainly in keeping order uh, where things get out of hand, uh, that's a constitutional authorization. And it's been used now and again for, you know, 200 plus years. All right, Dakota, I want to ask you about I want to go back to some of the uh, Mm -hmm. you're a Marine. You're a law and order guy. No doubt when you see what's going on in our country with uh, the rioting and the looting and everything else and uh, the resistance that some cities have to allow for law and order to come in mm-hmm. because they say it's protesting. But I think the average person watching it on TV goes, eh, doesn't look like a protest to me. <laughs> These are not quiet protests. No. They're looting stores and setting no. fire to cars and the whole bit. And so it really is a crumbling uh, that doesn't happen overnight. I think these sorts of things, you know, problems in a family or in a company, uh, these accrue over time. And it's usually because of distractions and people not paying attention. So, uh, you know, what does it mean to be an American? What does it mean to be civically responsible? What does it mean to be uh, respectful of the instruments of government that are there to actually help, you know, protect and serve like a local law enforcement community does? But I think good people uh, are strong because you're good, but there's also an inherent vulnerability here. And that's because generally people avoid conflict. So any meeting or on a sports field, the much more aggressive, verbose, uh, forward, uh, you know, prone to violence sort of people, they usually kind of get their way. And it's the good people who don't want to rise and fight to kind of give ground for a period of time until it gets to the point where you can't give any more ground. And so I think what we have seen over the past couple or three decades is a much more aggressive agenda uh, amongst people who are trying to push their view on the rest of society and the rest of society wanting to avoid conflict and wanting to give space for that has just felt that it's not been the time to push back. And so we see this erosion of respect for civil authorities. We see an erosion of respect really for diversity of opinion. And where we're at in a lot of our communities is if you don't think the way I think, then you're wrong because clearly I'm right. And that's not respecting, you know, freedom of choice and, and uh, in our daily living and, and the freedom of speech and being tolerant of what people have to uh, have to say. And so I think it's this, this erosion of those sorts of uh, issues, right, that have really led us to where we're at today. And, mm-hmm. and to think that a mob going down the street, you know, bashing windows and looting stores because of something that happened, uh, you know, a while back or, or another part of the country – uh, and somehow this makes them feel better or this is a compensation in some way. It's just lunacy. 
And I think that, you know, good citizens in all communities need to push back against that. You know, if we want to have debates at the poll, great. In the courts, fine. If you want to have you know, civic dialogue, uh, absent violence, you know, that's what the country is built on and how we run most uh, effectively. Mm-hmm. But to take to violence in any form like that, I think, is just unconscionable. And it really reveals the hand of people who want to impose their will and, and really not have a, a level you know, playing field in terms of having conversations. Yeah. Dakota, when you were a kid, did you ever think your skateboard would be a weapon? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. You know, yeah, you can. Yeah. And it's it's how you view things, right? You know, right. So I can have a table knife and cut a piece of steak or I can use it to stab somebody. So yeah. these are all personal choices. You know, people aren't forced to loot and pillage and destroy. That That is a personal choice. And it, it's undisciplined. It's a cruel it's destructive. You know, if you set fire to the local pharmacy or grocery store, do you think that company is going to come back uh, even for insurance purposes and rebuild? So these communities are destroying themselves and really doing them long-term harm. And it certainly doesn't gender the, uh, the sympathy uh, that they are seeking to get from the broader community. Mm-hmm. Dakota, I just have a minute left unless I cancel my next three guests. Um <laughs> Which I'm half tempted to do, but I, I just want to say this protesting, the goal, one of the goals obviously is to put as much fear into people as possible. Fair? Yeah. I, I think so. You know, if I can intimidate you and keep you away from whatever it is I'm wanting to keep you away, then I win. I impose right. my, my view. I get my elected official into office. I keep people away uh, out of the fear of some kind of physical harm or injury. And this is where courage is really important. You have to have sufficient courage to stand up, not in a violence for violence, you know, an eye for an eye. Right. But to say that we're not going to tolerate this sort of thing. And you can also bring pressure to bear on elected officials who really make your voice heard. Mm -hmm. Thank you for your work, and thank you for taking the time to talk to me today um, on this historic uh, day, 9-11. And I would love to have you back on the show again sooner than later. Anytime. Thanks a lot. Absolutely. Lieutenant Colonel Dakota Wood has been my guest fellow for the defense programs at the Heritage Foundation. We'll take a little break. We'll be right back. Providing timely tools to help you grow and encourage your faith. That's the Ministry of Faith Radio. I appreciate really good practical things I can use every day. I can There's things I can say and repeat and use all day long. It just reinforces the cause at work. It's a place where I can get truth where there really isn't any anywhere else. Connecting faith to life. Together on Faith Radio.
Welcome back to the show. Awfully glad to uh, be inviting onto the program Will Chesney. He is a uh, former Navy SEAL, and he always had a dream of becoming a SEAL. And he has also uh, written a book about a military working dog named Cairo. And I very likely could burst into tears at any time throughout this interview. I need to let all my listeners know that I got a real soft uh, spot in my heart for Cairo already. Um, and I want to hear all about him. Uh, Will has uh, written a, a book, uh, No Ordinary Dog, and it's the powerful true story of a, a SEAL team operator and, and military dog handler, and that's Will, and the dog that saved his life. Will, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. Thanks for the introduction. Yeah. Now, when you first uh, met Cairo, uh, you didn't know what kind of canine he would be, did you? I wasn't sure what your dog I would get, and there's a couple of different varieties that we use, but mostly Malin walls, but we also use uh, some Dutch Shepherds sometimes. Mm-hmm. But we ended up, on that previous deployment, I was supposed to get a dog named Chalco. He was a Malin wall. Uh, unfortunately, there was a couple of bad guys uh, set up in an ambush right before we returned from that deployment. And uh, Falco, the dog's name was Falco. He uh, ended up finding those guys and um, engaging them. Uh, they, unfortunately, they killed Falco in the process, but... Uh, mm-hmm. He definitely saved somebody from getting hurt that night. Um, yeah. I was supposed to get him when I got home, but um, obviously that wasn't going to happen. So new dogs came along, and uh, it was between Cairo and Bronco. Yeah. The book, which you have, so <laughs> you know the yeah. deal. <laughs> I, I know. What, what kind of dog was Bronco? Another Malinois? He was the same. He was yeah. a Malinois. Yeah. I want to hear uh, all about Cairo because I'm so fascinated, and I want to hear about, you know, your... You grew up in Southeast Texas, and, you know, you kind of considered yourself an ordinary average student and a guy who had a dream, and uh, you don't get to become a Navy SEAL unless you've got something pretty special on the inside of you. Yeah, you definitely have to want that job. You have to want to be there, and they make you earn it, that's for sure. If anybody doesn't know, you have to go through a process called BUDS, Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL Training, and it's about six, seventh month selection process where you can leave at any time and uh, some people say it's some of the hardest military training in the world and i would have to agree with them not that i've been through all of it but uh it was pretty it was pretty tough so yeah it was fun that was it was completely worth it it was actually you know it was hard but it was that purpose in life that i would have done for free i would have died for it was that thing that my calling that i really wanted to do and along the way i made uh some of the best friends i could ask for yeah, I uh, lived on Coronado for a while, so I would oh, oftentimes get uh, a latte um, with maybe an extra shot, and I'd look at the SEALs training, and I'd go, oh, that looks hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah Coronado's great. I love Coronado. It's a beautiful place. Yeah, it's love ab- getting back there. Absolutely the best. So uh, how many deployments had you been on uh, before you got Cairo? Um, I had a couple with four and one with the... Uh, with development group. Okay. On my first deployment with development group, I just saw how valuable of an asset the dogs were. You know, and I didn't even know that dogs were, or to the extent that dogs were utilized in the military until really that first deployment. Mm-hmm. And, uh, there's a saying in the book, you know, I remember being in the team room and somebody said, Hey, raise your hand if the dogs ever saved your life. And everybody's hand went up in the whole room pretty much. I mean, guys had multiple stories to tell. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. And that's just, you know, one, um, one group, one unit. That's these canines are used all through the military, law enforcement. They save lives every day, service animals. You know, they they do amazing things. So this just is a one canine handler story and 
it's um just sheds a light on some of the amazing things these dogs can do what they do for us yeah now i just wanted to uh, set up with my listeners just so they understand this amazing uh uh canine cairo that we're talking about he was one fearless warrior and he uh was the the, the lone non-human U.S. soldier to raid Osama bin Laden's compound in 2011. That is correct. Yeah, I just, he was the only dog, yeah. Yeah, I just want my listeners to know that he was uh, the only dog that was part of that uh, uh, attack and that uh, that night. And I, you probably can't talk too much about that. Maybe you can, but um, I'm just, I'm so fascinated with uh, the fact that, you, you, you know, you say Cairo was really a working dog. He didn't really like to play catch very much. He just wanted to work, didn't he? I think all those dogs need to uh, need a job. I mean, it, and it's like any. So I tell people these days, like before you purchase a dog, do a little bit of research and know what you're getting into. You can have the, if it's a working dog, you might want to give them a job. If it's a husky, Doberman, you know, lab, take it hunting. Um, for these dogs, they love to work. Um, Cairo was detect or trained to detect explosive and man odor. So our job that night was to do sweeps of the perimeter. He was looking for escape tunnels and booby traps, explosives, IDs. Once we felt the perimeter was secure, we moved our way to the inside. We did the same thing from false walls, anywhere somebody might be hiding, anything that might get somebody hurt. And then we exfilled, uh, made it back to the hangar. And, you know, a lot of the stuff I can't talk about. We had to get it approved through the Department sure. of Defense. Things are classified, but we did get it approved. And it's um, it's a great story. Cairo was shot even before that mission. I mean, you know, the only thing that people know about Cairo these days is that, you know, they heard his name from that mission. and. There's so much more to him than that. It's he was shot before the mission. You know, a lot of unfortunately, the dogs just don't survive that a lot of the times. So the fact that he made a full recovery is, is pretty amazing. It's, yeah, uh, I was very blessed that he survived that night. Yeah, you know, and that, Falco didn't survive. But yeah, that was not the first time, Will, that I cried reading the book. But uh, yeah. you know, I, I also want to let listeners know this is a book you got to get your hands on and read because it's an incredible story. And I, I want to ask you a little bit about just your learning curve with a dog and some of the occupational hazards and challenges that you face uh, w- with a, a a dog like Cairo. Yeah, the learning curve was pretty steep. I was a SEAL. I wasn't a dog handler. And, right. You know, you're trying to communicate with a thing that doesn't speak English, and you're asking them to do <laughs> some pretty crazy. You're like, to the bare minimum, you're asking them to go into a dark room and get into a fight with somebody twice his size and right. not let go no matter what. Um, not only that, he's got a skydive, fast rope, explosions, gunfire, slick floors, glass. I mean, you just name it. you got to put them all through this, through these tests. And um, it's a high-energy dog, high-drive dog. But, um, we went through a lot of things together. And he, was a pretty, uh, he was a pretty mellow dog through it all. Some people ask me what the difference between him and some of the other dogs were. And I like to say that he had that switch. You know, that's a lot of, uh, lot of high-energy, a lot of motivation to do that. Um, to turn it off when you get home, some of the dogs really just can't do it as much. Tyro mm-hmm. could. When we got back to the to the team room, he, we could take off his best vest and he turned that switch off when it wasn't when he wasn't working anymore. And he could be almost almost like a house pet. You always wow. treated him with respect, you know, because they're working dogs. You always have to treat him with respect. But um, yeah, he was a he was a real mellow boy. Yeah, and yeah. I know you were with him. 24-7, and I also understand, uh, Will, that he was a little bit of an intense snuggler and a uh, a, a blanket hog. Yeah, there was a couple bad things about him. He had terrible breath. It was like, that's one thing I'd say that was, it was his, that's one bad thing about him, and uh, he didn't, 
didn't uh, use, or he hogged the bed too much. Uh, during the middle of the night, he'd roll over in the middle of the bed and hit me in the face with his paws pretty consistently. So I'd have to kick him off. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about just the, the 24-7 demands that involve, uh, you know, feeding and grooming and exercising and, and ongoing training. I mean, because he's, he's a soldier and he needs to be ready to go all the time. He is. He's, um, we, we consider him a member of the family. It's a lot of work. Um, just not only the feeding, I mean, the training alone is it's consistent. You have to stay up to date with your SEAL training and all of that incorporates as long as, as, long, sorry, as well as the canine training. And there's a lot that goes into it. In sense of, you're having to communicate with an animal pretty clearly to get him to do some, some amazing things. And I think the training just never stops. Mm-hmm. But it was really cool. It was, um, the learning curve was steep, and it allowed me to step out of my comfort zone as well. Yeah. Because you, you had to figure out ways to communicate through body language and voice inflection. And that, that wasn't the easiest thing for me to do sometimes. So it was a great to, to learn that skill and still learn it, or use it to this day, you know, communicating with other people. You come into the room and you're putting off bad body language and maybe just take a step back and make it a little happier. You know, they're going to feed off your emotions. It goes with your children, your employees, with your animals. Yeah. yeah. Well, as you were growing in your relationship with with Cairo, you know there must have been a a, a trust bond that was something like almost brand new to you, uh, given the fact that you guys were together all the time. Yeah, we uh, we did uh, our bond grew pretty quick. At first, you know, it took a couple of weeks. There's some parts in the in the book where uh, he did some things, growling and nothing that I didn't. I wasn't really sure. You know, he's he's brand new. I've only had him for a week or two, and he's a He's a working dog. You know, I don't know you very well yet. So <laughs> right. it covers a couple of those moments that it, it turns out being funny. But at the time, you're like, this is a working animal. He looks like like a wolf, like a 70-pound shepherd. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> growling at things. And, yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's very, it got very interesting. But, you know, little did I know he was a, he was a sweet boy. Yeah. Did you have any moments, Will, where you went, uh-oh, I hope this dog likes me? Yeah, that, that moment in the book where he was growling at nothing and I wasn't sure what it was. And, you know, that got real awkward and uncomfortable. <laughs> it worked out well, but that was one of those moments. And then the moment in the book where he broke out of his cage and I thought he might be might have run off somewhere and be attacking who knows what. But, you know, I didn't know his personality at the time. If I would have known him, I, I wouldn't have worried, not even a little bit, just knowing his personality he just broke out had to go do his business and get back in the cage yeah <laughs> now Cairo also had that ability you had one episode where there was a, a child under a pile of blankets and he was able to s- sense that child and then not harm it in any way and then turn around and pretty much sink his teeth into the arm of a of a com- uh, of an enemy combatant it's like Cairo knew right from wrong didn't he I mean, that night he sure did. Yeah. I don't know how to explain that. And, you know, it's um, a lot of the times the dog, you know, dogs speak with their mouths. And they'll pick up pillows and blankets when they're searching just out of frustration or habit. And um, I, we walked into the room. I don't know why people would leave their uh, newborn infant in, in the house, but that's what happened. And Cairo must have just sensed that the baby wasn't a threat, obviously. And was, like I said, his, his temperament was just really calm and, and even tempered so he just must have known that the baby wasn't a threat he made his way into the other room and he actually made it past a woman or two and engaged a man that was hiding behind all of them and yeah. we ended up neutralizing the threat we didn't have to we were able to capture the guy instead of instead of kill him and get information from him wow 
Okay, well, I'm, I take a little break, but when I come back, I want to ask you what that experience is like to see your dog, your Cairo, who is trained to do what he's doing and is very good at what his job, what it's like when he sinks his teeth into an arm of somebody and you're able to take and neutralize the situation. I find this whole thing fascinating. Um, uh, Will Chesney is my guest. His book is called No Ordinary Dog. And we'll take a short break and be right back. Welcome back to the show. So glad to have Will uh, Chesney as my guest. He's a former U.S. Navy SEAL, and he's written a book called No Ordinary Dog, my partner from the SEAL team to the Bin Laden raid. So uh, because I have such a fascination with dogs that have this capability, and of course I've never seen it. I've seen them jump on people and attack people in bite suits, and even that seems kind of (laughs) scary. So now the person's not in a bite suit, and the dog uh, goes after somebody I would imagine that the person is uh, in control. You're in control pretty quickly in, in, under those uh, circumstances. Yeah, we don't send them into sketchy situations and unless we just have to. We always have their back, so we're always there to be right on top of them to, uh, to get them out of any harm. So but it's always a, it's a, one of the training tips is like when you see a dog engaging somebody, you don't look at the dog. You still have other responsibilities to take care of, but it's... Um, it's a it's an amazing sight to see a dog work and to you know I mean if, if he's engaging a bad guy those they're usually hiding and uh, they're 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 pretty good at doing that sometimes mm-hmm. so for the dog to find that person and engage him and allow them to show their hand and have us engage them before they can hurt one of us it's pretty it's just an amazing thing I mean every time I see it, it just it just every time we get back from the mission guys are talking about it it's just you know happy that nobody got hurt. And the dog did his job, and everybody came home safe. Yeah. Well, would you share with us that night that uh, Cairo took a, a bullet, and you were <clears throat> yelling for him, and, and uh, he came kind of walking around the wall because he couldn't jump over it, and you thought maybe that was the night you were going to lose him? Yeah, it was a kind of like a circumstance where Falco was killed. The other dog I was supposed to receive, um, two guys in an ambush site waiting for us to come in. They weren't listening. You know, we tried to get them to come out of the tree line they were in. They, obviously, they were bad, so they don't listen very well. <laughs> <laughs> um, eventually, the call was made to send the dog in, and Cairo did his job amazing. Found them. Again, they showed their hand. We engaged them. But unfortunately, in the process, Cairo was shot by them. And, uh, you know, like you said, when they get shot like that, they don't survive. Um, when, he, when I finally did see him, he was shot through his chest and his leg where they had to put a plate in. And I guess... Since he was shot through his leg, he probably couldn't hop over that low wall that he had that he had gone over before right. entering the tree line. And he made his way all the way back around and found a break in the wall. Mm. But before he could make it all the way back, he collapsed. And I just, you know, from past experience, I just immediately thought he was gone. Um, but I was able to get, make my way to him. We knew what the threat was. I didn't. They didn't. The guys on the line were engaging the enemy, so I was able to make my way over to him. And another teammate was as well. And I'm really glad he did. I thank God because I'm not sure if Cairo would have pulled through. Um, I was handing him the dog. Or Cairo had his own medical kit. Uh, as I was handing it to my teammate, he had to he happened to be a medic. Um, it just the teamwork there was pretty flawless considering wow. it was such a bad situation. I'm taking off his vest, handing him the kit. As I'm doing that, he's getting everything ready. And 
as I'm putting on his muzzle, he's stuffing his hands deep into his chest. And, you know, the Cairo didn't like that very much. So he was nipping at his hands trying to get him to stop. And it was just, everything went very smoothly considering it was such a bad situation. The helicopter pilots risked their lives coming in to pick him up and they helped save his life. Surgeons, when we got back on base, they worked on him just like a soldier. They continued to save his life. And eventually we got him to the veterinary clinic and he pulled through the night. And we got him back to Texas, and the great people there fully got him to fully recover. And we kept working and went on to do other great things. Mm-hmm. Tell me what emotions were racing through your mind that night. I was pretty intense. It was uh, it was very sad. I, I thought I lost him. Yeah. It a, it's a pretty disheartening feeling when you thought when you see your dog collapse and you think he's dead. But it was uh, when I got to him, like I said, I saw he was still alive, so I knew there was hope. And looking back on it now, I just seeing amazing guys that all came together and amazing um, teamwork we did. It was just, it worked. He, he, he could have bled out fairly easily right then and there. And just how everything went so smooth, we, we saved his life. When you got him to a surgeon, there was, this is not a veterinary surgeon. This is a, a regular surgeon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, regular surgeon. They didn't have to work on him, but he was part of the team. We treated him like, we treated him just because he was a dog. Doesn't, it didn't matter. He was part of the family, part of the team. Everybody felt that way. The pilots, they didn't care. They didn't have to fly in under fire and pick him up, but they did. And then surge didn't, the surgeons didn't have to work on him either, but he was a soldier just like we were, and they did. Oh, that is so sweet, Will. Yeah, here it's, uh, here comes the waterworks on my end. Yeah, well, we ask these dogs to do a lot. You know, we, we better treat them with the same respect. Yeah, absolutely. And For the, sure. Yeah, the, the, the vulnerability they must have. I mean, some of them, they were, they were night cameras, don't they? I mean, sometimes they're equipped with vision capabilities, so you can see where they're at, right? Yeah. Yeah. But sometimes and sometimes not. Yeah, okay. Um, so that was a, a long night, and, and uh, Cairo came through, and uh, in the book it said, you know, he uh, started licking your hand, and you thought, boy, I got my boy back. Yeah, it was pretty crazy how fast he recovered i mean i slept with him on the floor the towel floor that whole night because i really didn't think he would pull through he, he looked pretty bad mm-hmm. i didn't think he would make it and woke up the next morning and before you knew it he was wearing sunglasses wagging his tail had all of his tubes out and was like wow that was pretty quick <laughs> but he, you know he took him outside for his first restroom break and that was real slow and i've never seen him move so slow in my life but just not too much later he was crazy how quickly he recovered wow that's fantastic so when you are uh, on a mission and i guess uh, i don't know how long these missions last but you know dogs by nature have got a lot of fight in them a lot of uh uh, um energy but like any dog they're going to get tired aren't they they're going to want to eat they're going to want to do their business i mean um what kind of expectations do you have out of a working dog like cairo it's on the it's on the handler and the and the canine, as a team, you should know your canine and his capabilities, and you know you should be able to read him like a book. If he's onto something, you should be able to know. Um, that's what he's there for. But you should also know when he's getting tired. You should know when to feed him, when to break him. Um, it's just a lot of a lot of training and effort goes into it, and you're you're a, you're a well-functioning team by the time you get overseas. Yeah. So, um, tell me about your uh, your time in in the uh, as a seal too, and how you have come through all this. And I know that uh, President Obama wanted to meet Cairo right away. Yeah, he was, uh, he wanted to meet him. And it was, that was a, it was a great time. It was an honor to be able to meet, 
those guys, and um, it was a really cool event to do. Um, uh, yeah, it was a little bit about my own personal stuff. Getting, um, I did 13 years as a SEAL, and unfortunately in 2012 I was injured by hand. Maybe, I guess to pretty much the end of my career, I went through a couple of years of medical screenings and different events. I just couldn't. I had some bad migraines, memory loss, uh, back issues, uh, all, all kinds of different things, and uh, just wasn't feeling like my normal self, and I couldn't get back to, to where I felt like I was a fully functional SEAL again. So yeah. I was medically retired in 2015. It covers a lot of that process. I'm not articulating it very well right now, but it, it does cover it a little, a little bit in the book about some of the issues that I went through getting out of the military. Mm-hmm. So the book, you know, it tells Cairo's story. You know, it's a good piece of history. It tells the truth about what he's done, brings attention to the amazing things, amazing things these dogs do. And then it also covers a little bit about um, some of the traumatic brain injuries, TBIs, and transition out of the military and some personal stuff that I went through as well. Yeah, and so uh, appreciative of your work and your service. And uh, you, you now work with some people suffering from PTSD? I'm trying to focus more on the traumatic brain injury side. Okay, I think the, it's a yeah, huge yeah. problem with us now. And, um, you know, PTSD is also certainly an issue. We lose our yeah. teammates, and that's not an easy thing to deal with. But uh, the TBI is also a huge problem, I feel. And I'm trying to get into that space and see if um, where I can help. Yeah. Um, well, what, what would you say maybe the uh, it's one thing Cairo taught you? Oh, I'd say a lot of patience. And, patience? I know, he taught me a lot of things. Yeah, I mean, you just had to be, yeah. to communicate with the dog. Just, we, 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 we did a lot of amazing things together, some things I never thought I would. I love dogs ever since I was a kid, but I never thought I would do those kinds of things with a dog. Yeah. And, uh, just the training, just, just to get him to, to get to that level, you know, it takes a lot of work. And I didn't do all of that training, you know. I'm not trying to say I did. A lot of great people helped train him as well, but it took a lot to get him there and just to... To watch him and to get to be patient with the dog and communicate communicate with him clearly what you want. And uh, it was a huge, it's a huge learning curve on my part for sure. Mm. He definitely taught me a lot more than that, but that was one of the things I learned from him for sure. Yeah. And then you were able to get Cairo after he retired and he was your dog and, until he passed. Yes, I was. Um, I was. I had him for about a year at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a good year. We had a motorcycle and a sidecar. We'd go take trips around town. And I've seen that picture. I, it's fan- yeah. fantastic. Take him out on the boat. And, uh, we had a good, uh, we had a good, he had a good retirement, and I was able to take care of him towards the end of his life. Uh, he ended up getting cancer, and that was pretty rough. Yeah. So it was, it was good to be able to be there for him, and he helped me get through some pretty rough times. As I said, I was, I wasn't in the best place transitioning out of the military, so yeah, having him around definitely helped. And you've got um, his remains as well, and I think you uh, have a habit of taking them everywhere you go, don't you? I do sometimes. If I'm okay. flying, I don't usually travel with him much anymore uh well yeah he definitely goes on road trips with us still every once in a while he has a special place though i have a special place for him with uh with some other teammates that lost yeah that's so sweet it's just so sweet and do you have um do you have a, a malinois now i have a couple of malinois i have a boy who's three and we kept a, we had a set of litter so we kept a female puppy and she's about eight months now oh fantastic yeah they're a handful I bet. I bet they keep you so busy. You know, yeah, yeah. hours and hours a day they want to work, don't they? Oh, yeah. You have to give them a job. Yeah, you've got to give them a job. People these days, don't yeah. go out and buy a dog without doing a little bit of research. Because um, if you have an apartment, you go 
buy a mile and you go to work for eight hours, ten hours, you come home, you're probably going to have a new apartment. Yeah. No, just yeah. because you put them in a the kennel, that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> right. He'll get out of that real quick. Cairo, he's called Cairo Houdini. He break out of metal kennels, no problem. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, if you buy a working dog, you might want to give him a job or at least exercise him. I mean, just because you don't, you don't have to give him, like, a military or uh, law enforcement job, but just give him something to do, something to keep him busy, keep his mind working, and uh, get out his energy. Right, right. Yeah. Yep. Well, well, it's been really a delight uh, meeting you. Thank you so much for your story, your service to our country, and thank you for sharing the story of Cairo. I, it was for me, love at first sight. The picture of him on the on the cover of your book, No Ordinary Dog. Um, it's almost you want to buy the book just to have it on your on your shelf, uh, just for that fantastic picture of Cairo. I appreciate that, and uh, thank you. It's a, it was a great book. Uh, working with the co-writer Joe Layden was a it's a great process and we put together a great story yeah it's it's fantastic thank you so much and have a wonderful rest of the day yeah thank you for having me on you'll have a great day god bless you bet god bless to you will chesney's been my guest his book is no ordinary dog Uh, my partner from the seal teams to the bin laden raid that's all the show i have for you today i hope you've enjoyed uh this time together with me i'm excited about the next week we start our fall share bright and early monday morning but for now That's all. Till next week, and it's time to ring the bell. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.